Okay, tonight my goal is to get through 69 through 72. If you look at the last verse of 72, it says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And it begins then with book three. I would like to get through it, but to be honest with you, there's so much prophecy in 69, I just can't rush through it because it's really very rich. So with that much being said, let's want to dive right into Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. Next to Psalm 22, which is quoted uh, more than any other psalm about the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, we have 69. Now, 69 is going to deal more with the Lord's ministry, but it's also going to refer back to the cross. And I know I'm being very repetitive when I say this, but when we study the Bible, when Jesus said the volume of the book is about me, we see just how literal that is when we get to a chapter like um, Psalm 69. I'm going to begin by just reading the first nine verses. And again, next to Psalm 22, this one is probably maybe Psalm 53 also. But this one very, very much is messianic and deals with New Testament quotes, some that are going to surprise you. Nine verses, Psalm 69. Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck, and I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying, my throat is dry, and my eyes fail while I wait for my God. And those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord of God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, if I'm just reading the Psalms, and um, over and over again, almost without exception, if David is the one doing the writing, he's talking about guys that are on his tail, that want him taken out. And he is calling out to the Lord to be the one to deliver him from these who would have David just be gone, period. What I wouldn't get out of this, if I was just reading it straight through, And if I didn't have the New Testament that clearly points me back to verse 9, I would have never put this together. And it's only through the Holy Spirit, this verse in 9 here is actually quoted verbatim in John chapter 2, verse 17. It's going to give us an opportunity to do a little sidetrack here. But let's read it again. Because your zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now we've just discovered that this is not David who is speaking. It is in a prophetic sense. In verse 3, I have highlighted in red, I have a prophecy Bible, where it actually puts the Lord on the cross. I am worried with my crying, my throat is dry, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. It could have also been in in the garden. Let's turn to John chapter 2 in the New Testament and um, pick it up in verse 13 and explain just a little bit what's going on behind the scenes here. As I study what's going on in our economy today, and probably the biggest reason we're in economic danger, we'll probably use as our update when we 
We have it on uh, New Year's Eve. We're printing trillions of dollars worth of money. We're the only country in the world can do it because the money has to go through dollars in order to buy uh, petrol. They're called petrodollars. And we made a deal, Kissinger made a deal years ago with Saudi Arabia that that's how it would work. We'd watch their back and the royal family, and you could only buy oil with dollars. Well, now that's, they're work, beginning to work, try to work around that. But we're the only country in the world that can get away with doing this. We are way over our head in debt because of it. Well, in this chapter here, if you would go to Jerusalem, and it was one of the feasts, and let's say it was Passover, and you had to buy a Passover lamb. Jesus was poor, and there's provision. If you were poor, then you could buy a dove or something that only you could afford as a poor person. But before you could purchase it, whatever, let's say you were from Greece, and you had that currency. Well, before you could purchase your lamb, you had to exchange it into the temple shekel. And in the process, there was a, there was a fee, a usury fee, that was involved. And by this, the, the priesthood was extremely wealthy. So let's pick it up, uh, verse 13 of uh, chapter 2. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Every Jew had to, if you were 13 and above. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing their business. And he made a whip of cords, and he drove them out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money changers, and he overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then, notice here, he says, Don't make my father's house. It says his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And then in my Bible it says Psalm 69, verse 9. This was the Holy Spirit. Jesus was in the act of doing something they've never seen him do before. And that is, uh, you know, the Bible says be angry, but sin not. It's okay to be angry. And if we're not angry with some of the the shenanigans that are taking place in the name of uh, the Lord today, then we should be. And um, I'm not afraid, as you know, to name names when we get into a situation like this because it's what we're up against. And unfortunately, we, as Christians, sometimes we all get pegged into one box. Oh, you're just one of those fundamental Christians and so on and so forth. And so we have, I'm going to mention four ministries. There's many, many more, but I don't have the time to go through all of them. I'm just going to hit, hit some of the big bad guys that are out there that are charlatans, It might be that they do teach from the Bible, but a lot of it is showmanship, And but the bottom line is the buck. Without getting into a lot of these, uh, Benny Hinn's at the top of the order here. His ministry collects about $200 million a year. Uh, He has a $10 million house in the Pacific Ocean, and I could go on and on and on with him. Joyce Meyer, this is going to hurt a lot of girls' hearts because she's a prosperity teacher, in 99, or back in 2003, her salary was just uh, just under a million dollars a year. Uh, both both these uh, people here have their own personal private jets and luxury cars. Kenneth Copeland, he won't release his, but he flies around in a $20 million Cessna. Can you see the Lord taking a jet from the Galilee? No, 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 no. He walked wherever he went. He had no income. And he looked for people to 
that were with them that had a heart. You know, they, they got in trouble for walking through the uh, wheat field on a Sabbath day because that's how they were getting their meal that day. And the Pharisees got on them and said, it's the Sabbath, you're working, you can't do that. The Lord says, you better go back and study David when he was on the run from Saul, how he was hungry. And he went to the city of Nob and a high priest, Ahimelech, gave him bread. So, and then, of course, there's uh, Kenneth Copeland. Then there's um, Creflo Dollar, <laughs> with a name like that. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? His ministry um, brought in about $70 million, and uh, his church provided him with a Royals Royce, and he has his own, um, his own jet. And I can go on and on and on and on. TBN is a travesty, the largest TV network in the world, and they've been called on count many, many times. So here we have the Lord with zeal. Psalm 69, verse 9 is coming up, but now you know why it's coming out. We're looking at the ministry, and we'll touch more on this on Sunday. As we go through the Bible, you can preach about the ministry of Christ from Psalm 69. On Sunday, it's going to be his, his ministry, uh, the work on the cross, his resurrection, and the kingdom, all just from the Psalms. It's all there. As the way it's supposed to be, and this is one of the things that troubles me, is I see it more when we travel. Like if we're down in Arizona, they have the TBM programs and the Christian programs. It's embarrassing. What can I say? It's just plain embarrassing. I remember talking with uh, the Calvary Chapel pastor in um, Apache Junction, and we were bemoaning the fact of uh, what we have to undo before we can do something positive. We have to undo our association and say, we, we are just as much appalled as the world is by the shenanigans that are taking place in the name of Jesus Christ. Any common, ordinary Joe is wise enough to figure out that these guys are in it to make a buck and to make a lot of bucks. So my Bible teaches me this. Freely we have been given. Freely give. Freely we've received. What you have is a free gift. Everybody's out buying gifts this time of year. But what you got, you didn't pay for. You don't deserve it, and you can never earn it or own it. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Just the way it is. So if it's been given freely to us, then how should we be presenting it to people when they observe us? Now, we go out of our way. Some Calvaries are different. We go out of our way. If the Bible talks about tithing and teaching on tithing, we'll talk about it. But we just put a little blurb in the back of bulletin that says the tithes and offerings. We're not going to take a collection for tithes and offerings. We have boxes, and, and we make it a non-issue. Well, I sat in a Calvary about a month ago, and part of their worship is to take a collection. But the guy who got, got up and did the uh, announcement, he just said, let me explain something first of all. If you're new here this morning and you're visiting Calvary Chapel for the first time, then we want you to know that does not apply to you. We're going to worship the Lord now in our giving to him. And so, but if you're visiting this morning, that does not include you. You are a guest. So we don't want you to think for a second that uh, we are here because we want your money. I care less about your money. But I do care that you hear this book, and I do care that it finds a place in, in your heart. And uh, we let the Lord take care of the financing. That's one of Chuck's beatitudes. And, and it's true. Where God guides, he does provide. And we really believe that. And so the whole idea here, it, it offended the Lord so much 
that these religious leaders were taking currency, making money to make it the temple shekel, and it was a racket. And it was so much of a racket that the Lord put it in order. I can just see him going in there and turning over tables and pigeons flying all over the place and money over here and money over there. And they ask him straight out, what sign do you show us that you do these things? Who do you think you are that you do these things? He says, I'll, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. And they said, you're crazy. It's taken us so many years, and you're going to rebuild it in three days. But of course, he was talking about this temple here at his body. And he knew what they were going to do. So for the record, and where we stand here, we are to be in the giving business, not the taking business. And we are here to expose. I'll be to talk about Alexander the coppersmith in just a little bit as we talk about imprecatory prayer. You're probably thinking, what's an imprecatory prayer? Well, I'll let you know what one is when we get there. But it's the idea, praying that the Lord would deal with, with the Benny Hins of the world and deal with them quickly, that people would have enough discernment when they hear a Bible study to go, this guy's not on the take, this guy is. And you, it needs to be, uh, I think, exposed from the pulpit, those that are in it. The whole idea of just patting their own pocket. So I could really get sidetracked on that, but what I want you to notice is Psalm 69, verse 9. If I'm just reading this through on my own, reading my Bible, I'm not going to pick up on that. And all of a sudden, it was the Holy Spirit that brought it into the disciples. They're, they're watching this thing unfold. What's the Lord doing? Oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit just dropped 60, Psalm 69, verse 9, into their head, and it said, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Dwight's translation, the Lord is ticked off, and that they're taking advantage. This is a house of prayer, and you've made it into a den of thieves, and you're just making a buck off of it. So our model from the beginning in sending out guys into ministry, they have to go out just like the Apostle Paul. We call it your tent tent-making days. So if you want to plant a Calvary, um, you go out and you work with your hands. Paul made tents. I painted houses for seven years. That's just whatever you could do. If you can do that, then whatever whatever comes. If the Lord blesses enough so you don't have to go out and, and work an eight-hour day so you can give yourself more to the ministry, then great. But the way it's been modeled for us is, and then Chuck did this for years, it was many, many years before he could be full-time in the pulpit. So we got to go back to Psalm 69, verses 1 through 9. Let's go 10 through 21 next. And reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. And I also made sackcloth my garment. And I became a byword to them. And those who sit in the gate speak against me. And I am a song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy. Hear me in the truth of your salvation, and deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up nor let not the pit shed its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good, and turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. 
Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor, and my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for somebody to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And all of a sudden, again, you think you're reading about David and what he is going through, but all of a sudden you got the gospel right here again. This time I need to turn you to Matthew chapter 27. Picking up in verse 34, Jesus is now being crucified. There was a man named Simon from Cyrene that was called to carry his cross. Verse 33 says, When they came to the place that was called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, that they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. In other words, he was going to receive the full wrath of God unimpaired in any way, and he refused this here. If you go down to verse 48, he's calling for Elijah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 48, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. He is going to say he thirsts. So we have, my Bible says in verse 32, and also um, in verse 48. If you look at the cross-references there, they will both say Psalm 69, verse 21. And again, what we have now in Psalm 69, we already have three Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled in uh, the Lord's ministry. And I would, again, if I'm just reading through this, I'm not picking up on it at all until I realize that the the Psalms, again, are prophetic. The volume of the book is about Jesus and uh, David and pouring his heart out. He's held up in such a way, and God's hand was on David in so many special ways. But yet, a man with faults and sin, David was an adulterer, he was a murderer, Uh, But that's not what he's known for. He's known for being a man after God's own heart. And he's known as a man who, when he was in trouble, number one, he didn't make excuses, and he took his problems to the Lord. Can I say that again? Number one, he didn't make excuses. Saul was an excuse maker, not David. And the other thing is, if he had an ax to grind, he got on his knees, and it was in the prayer closet that he did his talking, and not busy-bozzy gossiping or slandering. That wasn't David. David is the one who modeled it. He wrote it down, and uh, he, he poured his heart out genuinely to the Lord. So again, without belaboring that too much, let's go back to Psalm 69. And now there's one more. Actually, there's a couple more. Let's read 22 through 36 in this here and finish it up. He says, let their table become a snare before them. Now, this is actually a prayer. And when I mentioned earlier about an imprecatory prayer, Here is David asking the Lord to go after the guys that are after him. I'll come back and I'll comment on it in just a bit. There will be a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins uh, shake continually and pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecuted him you have, whom you have struck, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Let them reap what they sow. 
and let them not come into your righteousness. Now verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written in the righteous. I have to stop here just for a second because basically what this verse is telling us here in verse 28 is that apparently there is the book of creation and when we were born, we were recorded in that book. In Psalm 139, David said, Thine eyes did you see my substance yet being unperfected. And in thy books all my members were written, which is continually before I was fashioned, and yet my days was none. In other words, before I was even born, you were writing everything down about me. This verse right here implies that there is a book that is of the living. In other words, every person who is ever born is written in a book. Now, it doesn't mean there's not another book, because in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 3, so one of the promises is your name won't be blotted out of the book. I believe there's the book of life, and evidently there's a book of creation. There's also the book in Revelation 20 that says, and the books, plural, were opened, and out of these books the men of the earth that weren't saved were judged. What was in them? Everything they ever did. Everything. I mean, it's copied on hard drive and you can't push delete. It's there. And when it comes out, you'll you'll stand guilty as charged. And then it says, anybody's name who is not found written in the book of life, which might be different from the book of creation, and this is where we get it from here. Um, Which verse was that? Let, Let that be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So evidently there's more books that we don't know about. All right, I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. I think of David, what a, what a guy. I look forward to beating this, this guy. He's a man's man, unbelievable warrior, poet all at the same time. And uh, But above everything else, had a passion to know his God. This all shall, shall please the Lord better than, than ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And those who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let her, heaven and earth praise him, the sea and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell and possess it. Also the descendants of his servant shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. From 22 to 36, we have David calling and actually asking the Lord to do these guys in. And he's very, very um, pointed about what he's asking for. He wants the Lord's anger to take away their habitation and get their just dues. This raises the question, all right, let's talk about imprecatory prayer. Is it unchristian? Well, I'm going to give you McGee's two cents worth on this, and I'll let you know right away this is extremely controversial, and you'll understand why in just a second. There are some folks who consider the imprecatory prayer as unchristian, but since it is quoted in the New Testament in reference to those who have rejected Christ, McGee says, I see nothing unchristian about it. I feel that the imprecatory prayer has been greatly misunderstood. When we put them back into that position where they belong, 
we see that their judgment is being pronounced upon the lost. Let's turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And this, to me, is an interesting place where this shows up because Paul now is going to quote this. Not in the Gospels. Now we're talking Paul. But it happens to be in Romans chapter 11. Now, the definitive chapters on how God is going to deal with Israel happens to be Romans 9, 10, and 11. And you can't understand God's overall plan for the church in Israel and gang unless you got these three chapters down. And if you look, um, I'm going to read all, I'm going to take my time through this and make my way up to where it's quoted from the Old Testament. The question here in verse 1 I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am an Israelite. Now, these are the ones that when the JWs come knocking on your door and you begin to explain to them that they're not the 144,000, and then they'll tell you, well, yes, they are, because Jesus was rejected. The Jews rejected him. Therefore, God has rejected the Jews. And now we're the 144,000. And then I usually say, well, how can you be one of the 144,000? There's been more 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses around before you were even born. He says, well, we're going to get there, but our place isn't as good as theirs. Oh, really? Where are you coming up with that? And by the way, let's go to Revelation chapter 7. Read it carefully. Does it say anything about Christian? Isn't it strange that it says 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, Benjamin, Judah, Ephraim, Manasseh, and it goes right down the list. And I said, by the way, do you take the Bible seriously? Oh, yeah, we do. And what about literally? Yeah, that too. Well, it's talking about Jews here now, isn't it? And he says, well, there's still been set aside. Oh, really? Can we now turn to Romans chapter 11? And I said, and then I have them read it, and I ask them to read it out loud. And uh, the question is, I say then, has God cast away his people? Stop. You just told me that God cast away his people, right? And, I, and they said, yes. Okay, read it again. And I make him read it twice. I say that has God cast away his people? And I stop. What are the next two words? Certainly not. And I said, would you repeat that again, please? Certainly not. And so is that clear enough for what purposes and plans that God has for his people? Then he takes it and explains that he himself is a Jew of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew or do you not know what the scripture said of Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars. I'm the only guy who's left that they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved myself 7,000. And if I, would, if I would take that and add to it, i say, and when the church is gone, he's got 144,000. And then he'll even use Moses and Elijah as witnesses and have not bowed their knee to Baal. Even so then, at the present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace that it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But it's of works that it's no longer grace. Otherwise works is no longer works. Is everybody with me here? So much for salvation with works. You can't have it both ways. So this is one of the main issues I have with Roman Catholicism is because you are saved by your works. And if you don't have your works, then you're not saved. And uh, they're, they're mutually ex- exclusive here. It's one or the other. Either you'll be saved by grace or by your works. 
I vote for grace. Who else? (laughs) What then? Has not Israel not obtained what it seeks? But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now, just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, Let your table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their their back always. Psalm 69, 22, and 23 is um, David's prayer against um, his enemies. Now, the purpose of Israel's rejection is so that... um, I say that, have they stumbled because they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You know who was jealous? A guy named Nicodemus. He looked at Jesus and he says, I don't know what you got, but I want it. I ain't gonna let anybody see me when we have a little talk at night. But he sought him out. He says, you're different. How can you do these things that you're doing? You're breaking the Sabbath every time you heal somebody. I know all about your works. And you're doing it wrong, but yet God is with you. What is it? What do you have? Nick, you need to be born again. Clear and simple. I thought you were a teacher in Israel. Don't you understand any things, Nicodemus? And he says, you must be born again. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that you must be born again. God and his wisdom. Jesus says that the gospel's for the Jew, the Jew first. They had to be blinded. What if they weren't blinded? Then the gospel would have never went to the Gentiles. Just go back to the same chapter, verse 25. And I quote this often. He says, I don't want you, brethren, verse 25, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that this hardening in heart that has happened to Israel, it is temporary. And the Lord allowed it to happen so that the Gentiles could have the gospel presented to them. And they couldn't believe it. I mean, when Cornelius got saved, unbelievable. A Gentile gets saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, speak with tongues. This was unbelievable that a a Gentile dog could actually get saved. Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written, a deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob and from this is my covenant with them when I take their sins away. Let's get back to predatory prayer. Actually, this is one of the more common questions that I have. When I talk about forgiveness, do I have to? I've had people come right up and say, do I have to forgive them? Let me just read. If if you go online, this is where the debate goes on. Here's somebody who's going to take the opposing view of what uh, J. Vernon McGee says. Using imprecatory prayer for our circumstances today is unjustifiable. It would require taking these prayers out of context. In the New Testament, Jesus exhorts us to pray for our enemies, Matthew and Luke. But praying for the death or bad things to happen to them isn't what he meant. Instead, we are to pray for their salvation first and foremost, and then for God's will to be done. There's no greater blessing than a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All that is true. But let me remind you of a prayer that Paul had for a certain Alexander the coppersmith. Is everybody with me when I say that? Paul writes about him because he did much harm to Paul when Paul was trying to bring the gospel. He did everything he could to stop him. 
And so Paul prays for Alexander the coppersmith. He says, Lord, go get him. And, um, and uh, there's other times when the guys were blinded. He said, Lord, I just pray, blind this guy. And the Lord did it. So the question is, do I have to forgive? Well, let me answer that with a question. Does God forgive if you don't repent? What is the answer to that question? In other words, is forgiveness universal? No, it's forgiveness when you repent and admit you've done something wrong. It says before you go to church and you got something against somebody, make it right. Don't be the hypocrite and go to church and not making it right. But if you're asking me for my personal advice, I'd say forgive them for your sake. For your sake. So that you're not the one that's tossing and turning and rolling around at night. So that it's not on your head and your shoulder. Just forgive them and do it that way. Do I have to? Not if they don't come and repent. But if you want to live with that on, on your conscience, you're freer, in my opinion, if you don't. Probably one of the most commonly asked questions, as you can see, there's two sides of the coin. McGee's got his version. And um, this brother here, absolutely. Do we pray for our enemies? We sure do. What do we pray for? That they get saved. That's what we pray for. But, you know, the Bible says that we are to live at peace with, what's the rest of that sentence? We live at peace with everyone as much as lives within us. In other words, as much as, as, <laughs> as much as you can handle the person, live at peace with them is the idea. All right, let's go back to Psalm 69 and finish it up there. I probably stirred up more questions than giving answers with this one. All right, verse 28. Let's go back to verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. I told you I had to spend a lot of time on, on Psalm 69, verse 25. Let their habitation be desolate and let your angry take hold of them. When Peter gets up and realizes that Judas has been taken out, let's pick it up in verse 15, Acts 1. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number and the names were about 120. He said, Men and brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who would become a guide to those who arrested him. And there he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9. For he was numbered with us, he obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, burst open in the middle, and his entrails gushed out. That's pretty gross. (laughs) And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and here it is, let his habitation be desolate, and let no one live in it, Psalm 69, verse 25. And again, I'll make the point, if I'm reading through the Psalms, I would have never picked up on that. But here, again, he makes the point that this is he is being anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring out these verses from the Psalm, and in this case, it applies to Judas Iscariot. All right, now we can make it on to Psalm 70, and it's only five verses long. So I'm going to really set a record on this one because I'm going to read it, and it's basically a prayer for the needy, poor and needy. And um, the fact of the matter is we're all poor and needy when it comes to the things of the Lord. It's a prayer of David. He said, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O God. And let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. 
Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. Let all those who see you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let the Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So let's make the Bible study tonight participatory. So when I say that, um, when we read verse 5, I'm going to read, but I am poor and needy. We're going to read it out loud together. I've never done this before. Spur of the moment type thing. But I'm going to put my name in there when I say I, and you're going to put your name in there, and we're all going to read it together. Verse 5. Are you ready? Here we go. But Dwight am poor and needy. Make haste to help me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. And I read this because as I was reading again my commentary in McGee, that's exactly what he did. He said, I'm the one that's really poor and needy. And so there's Psalm 70, David, who was extremely wealthy and had all these gifts and talents. But when he looked at himself in the eyes of the Lord, he saw himself as poor and needy. Psalm 71. This one is for the aged. David was probably... Uh, because uh, Psalm 72, it says these are the end of David's prayer. I imagine David's getting up there in age, and he talks about it in his psalm. And so it's subtitled, The Prayer for the Aged. In you, O Lord, I do put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. And deliver me in your righteousness, and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong habitation to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and you are my fortress. And deliver me, O my God, out of the hands of the wicked, out of the hands of the unrighteous and the cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God, you are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from my birth. So he's looking back. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. I praise shall be continually of you. I have become a wonder, to, a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day, and do not cast me off in the time of old age. So evidently he is uh, getting up there. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. So he's still talking about his enemies. For my enemies speak against me, And those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there's none to deliver him. In other words, get him while he's down. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. Let me, let them be confounded and consumed, who are adversaries of my life. And let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and even more. And my mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day. For I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of the Lord God and I will make mention of your your righteousness, of yours only. O God, you have taught me from my youth. I can think David looking back to those nights when he's just taking care of dad's sheep before Samuel showed up on the scene. And he'd be playing his um, guitar underneath the stars, just singing worship songs. Just the Lord and his guitar and a bunch of smelly sheep. (laughs) 
David reminiscing of the good days when he was young. You've taught me from my youth. To this day, I declare your wondrous works. And also now when I am old and gray-headed, oh God, do not forsake me. What a blessing it is for David to be able to say, you know, from the cradle to the grave, he walked with the Lord. Made mistakes, but he did it his whole life. From the time that uh, Samuel called him out as the next king of Israel. But he says, now I'm old and gray. O Lord, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation. That reminds me of Chuck. I mean, Chuck died on a Wednesday, but he was in the pulpit on a Sunday. He had oxygen things going up his nose. Man, what he, we just stand amazed at this man because, you know, he had three services in the morning and then one on Sunday night. He did that up until the time that the Lord took him home. How? I have no, no idea. I was totally amazed that in his mid-80s that he had that much stamina in him. All right, pick it up, verse 20. You have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. Also, with the lute I will praise you. And your faithfulness, O my God, to you I will sing with the harp, O God of Israel. Look look forward to this Friday night with Jim Cole being with us. He's a dear brother, extremely gifted musician. And the Lord has just given some people that gift to bless the body of Christ. And David, oh, what I, what I wouldn't give just to have a little glimpse of what he sounded like, what his voice sounded like. How good was he on that harp anyway? My tongue shall also talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. So if you want to catch the, the reoccurring theme over and over again, is David just pouring out his heart, and he pours it out only to the Lord. Well, I'm going to wrap it up with this because next Wednesday evening is Christmas Eve. And on Wednesday after that, it's New Year's Eve. We're going to have a special Christmas Eve service. Don't close your Bibles yet. I'm not done. <laughs> I'm just getting warmed up. i got one more chapter to go. This is a natural break. When we get done with 73, I'll be able to say the Psalms of David and Jesse are ended. And I think it's great timing because we're going to go into Christmas Eve and then New Year's Eve. So let's go through Psalm 72 because there's one more thing in Jesus' ministry on Sunday. And I'm going to tie all these things together. And we'll see that Psalm 72, it says here, it is the Psalm of Solomon. And again, in, in reading the commentaries, McGee will come right out and say, no, it's not. It's the Psalm of David. <laughs> so who's right? Did the guys who, who put this down get a misprint somewhere? I don't know. But it says the Psalm of Solomon, but it says the prayers of David instead of Jesse are ended. So figure it out. But it's about the kingdom, the millennial reign. So now we're going future. The reign of the Messiah. Give the king your judgment, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The judgments in the Bible are the judgment seat of Christ, the judgments of the nation in Matthew 25, and then the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. Those are the main ones. The mountains shall bring peace to the, to the peoples and the little hills by righteousness, he will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the, need, the, the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. 
I hear what happened yesterday when 164 kids were killed in Pakistan. There's times that I just think, you know, just let me get my hands on them. I don't care. Let me get my hands on guys that, are, that have absolutely that much no conscience at all that would just do this to children. Well, when the Lord kingdom comes, that's going to be pretty much the way it is. He's going to be the one to save the children and the needy. Uh, there won't be that need, and if there's any sort of injustice, it, it says when he rules with a rod of iron, that's what he means. Uh, he'll tolerate that for about two seconds. And they shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endures throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the morning grass, like showers that water the earth. The days of his righteousness will flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. So it's basically saying that um, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But what we have in view as we close up the second book of Psalms is the 1,000-year millennial reign when Jesus Christ literally reigns from Jerusalem over all the earth. And according to the promises uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, we're going to rule and reign with, with him as kings and priests. He will have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish, of the isles, will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Sheba will also bring gifts. Yea, all the kings shall fall down before him, all nations are going to serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries. Matter of fact, it says, even before you ask, he will hear and answer your prayer. The poor also, and him who has no helper, he will spare the poor and the needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their lives from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain on the earth, and on the tops of the mountains his fruits shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. And his name shall endure forever, his name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him, and all nations will call him blessed. Now as I close, I want you to notice, David knows he's wrapping things up. But I sense in the writing, in the reading of it, a sort of a crescendo as David is bringing this and winding up. So he says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen, 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 amen. <laughs> the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. We've just finished book two. What we've seen in Psalm 69 is the Lord's ministry, his death on the cross, and also a little peek into Romans 11 and God's plan for the Gentiles. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for David, Lord, and the anointing that you had on this man's life and how he continues, Lord, because of your word to continue to encourage and to bless us. Thank you, Lord, as we stumble and make our way through the scriptures that we run across these scriptures that zeal has eaten him up because of your house and, and understand, Lord, that that was just a prophecy of an event that would take place in the future. Lord, in closing, I pray for these ministries that are on the take, that do not fear you, 
but are in it only to make a buck, and it doesn't matter who they step on or who they hurt. Lord, in the same way that Paul prayed for Alexander the coppersmith that you deal with them, I pray you deal with these charlatans that are misrepresenting your nature, your character, and the whole idea that you told us that we freely have received, so we need to freely give. So Lord, this season, give us give us hearts that are giving, not so much in the presence that we want underneath the tree, but having a heart as, as David did for those that are, just don't know you. And Lord, if we have a problem with somebody, as we've learned from the Psalms, help us take it to you, as he did here in, in his example of casting his cares upon you. Lord, bless your people as we go out tonight, and we just uh, pray for this time of year that you just give us your perfect peace. It's crazy out there. We pray we be anxious for nothing. And we just rest in you through it all. In Jesus' name, amen.